Welcome to Amplify, a podcast about the future of Europe, produced by the DCU Brexit Institute. We cover the latest developments in European integration, including the Conference on the Future of Europe and the Next Generation EU Post-Pandemic Recovery Plan. I'm your host, Ian Cooper. This episode is a recording of a panel discussion about the Conference on the Future of Europe that was part of a workshop for the Jean Monnet Project Relay, held on September 30th in Brussels. The speakers are, in order, Karina Strachula of the European Policy Centre, Gaetan Ricard-Nihul, who is a member of the Common Secretariat for the Conference on the Future of Europe, Flavia Gabriela Sandu of the Young European Federalists, and the discussant is Marcus Spurrer of the Cabinet of the European Ombudsman. The chair is Christine Neuhold, the leader of the Relay Project, and we would like to thank her for sharing this recording with us. And we're going to look at the Conference on the Future of Europe and more in general also citizen involvement, because that is, of course, at the heart of the Conference of the Future of Europe are the citizen panels. And that's one way of bringing citizens closer to the European Union. And that's, of course, also one thing that we're trying to do here today. Speaking on the Conference of Future of Europe, uh, we have Gaetan arriving. We're all very busy, so we very much understand that, uh, yeah, that uh, work also has to be done. Why? And not everyone can always be in an academic conference. So um, just take your seat and your time, Gaetan. So um, we are now going to discuss the conference on the future of Europe, but also other ways of involving citizens in EU decision-making more in general. And so we have a similar uh, setup as from the former first panel in the morning, which everybody agrees was really nice. Um, So what we've done, we've given the speakers some questions and they are free to choose whatever they want to focus on. So I'm also not really reading out the questions. But then we come back uh, to these questions and then we also open, of course, um, the floor for you to come in uh, as an audience. So, um, and then we also have a discussant who will pick up on some of the things that have been said, but also should feel free to bring in his own experiences and his own uh, views. And I would like to change the order of of the panelists and I will give Corina Stratulat first the floor because she has been sitting here. Um, no, you can just start. That's fine, right? If you want, or Gaetan, okay, if you want to start. I'm going to. I just want to introduce yourself. Yes. Um, so, Corina Stratulat is a senior policy analyst and head of the European Politics and Institution Program, the European Policy Center. And next to her, and you can still figure out who wants to go first, next to her is Gaetan Rikat Nihul, who is a former member of the Common Secretariat for the Conference on the Future of Europe. And many of you know her and, uh, because you have worked on the Conference of the Future uh, of Europe, where she was very much involved. And next to her is Flavia Sandu, a member of the executive board of the Young European Federalist Europe. And then we have our discussant, Welcome from the cabinet of the European Ombudsman, Markus Spörer. So we have different views. So who would like to go first? I don't want to impose anything on anyone. 
Yeah, okay. Just pick it up. Hello, you, you can hear me, right? My voice is anywhere but loud, so I don't know if the microphone is needed. Um, right, um, well, I was going to focus a little bit more on the recommendations and the outcomes. So um, assuming that maybe Gaetan will want to give us her insights of the process, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how we uh, play this out. Um, before I start, maybe it's worthwhile um, asking whether you are familiar at all with the Conference on the Future of, of Europe. Yeah, I mean, some of you probably were involved in the organization of some of the panels because one of them took place in at least one of them, I think, in Maastricht. Yeah. Um, but the rest, have you heard about the Conference on the Future of Europe? Not really. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so maybe it will be useful uh, if Gaetan refers more specifically to some of uh, the elements in the process. What maybe what I can uh, do is to distinguish a little bit uh, between two dimensions of, of this initiative that has uh, taken place. Um, two dimensions which um, I will keep di distinct just for the sake of the conversation we're having, but in reality they are of course interrelated and one of them refers to, to the process. Um, of the conference and the other one to its uh, recommendations or the outcome um, uh, of, the, of the exercise. On the process side, um, uh, what, what should be said, and then maybe we can go into details uh, uh, later on, uh, is that the conference has experimented uh, with a number of deliberative and participatory um, um, elements uh, on an unprecedented scale. Um, and this has happened, for example, in the context of the European Citizens Panels that some of you are familiar with. It has happened also um, in, um, at, in the conference plenary, where sort of the representative and the participatory dimensions of the conference have come together. It has happened thanks to the multilingual um, um, uh, platform uh, where citizens from across Europe could go and express their opinions or their positions on the different uh, topics discussed by the conference. And so there were all these very um, different uh, elements that um, uh, were put in place to enable citizens from um, across member states at a different level of governance to uh, give their opinions about the future of Europe uh, on specific themes that had been chosen for the conference. And so now we, we can discuss about uh, each of these different elements uh, later on, but uh, suffice it to say for now that uh, by and large, um, it, it actually, they, they were more successful than expected. So it, it, it kind of worked. Um, everything went rather smoothly. Um, of course, there were some issues that some problems that were encountered. Some of them had to do, uh, for example, with the broadness of the themes chosen. Uh, the topics for discussions were, were very large. Um, others had to do with the fact that the time for discussion was rather limited and many decisions were taken in the end um, over a short period of time. Um, just as a parenthesis here, initially the, the conference had been envisioned as a two-year process and it ended up being just 
uh, taking place over just one year. So obviously things get more condensed time-wise. Um, so there was lack of time. There were also quite weak links between the different levels at, at which this conference was taking place. So although in principle, some connections had been envisioned between events taking place in the member states and the European citizens panels or the multilingual digital platform, in reality, those links didn't uh, prove very solid or as solid as one might wish. And there was also some ambiguity of purpose. What were, what were we really going to do with the citizens' input? Is this uh, going to be just an exercise of raising awareness about uh, European affairs, or is it really an exercise in which we're going to, 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 to listen to the people and then act on what they have told us? So there was some ambiguity of purpose there as well. But all of these, um, uh, let's say, problems that one can mention regarding the process ultimately were givens from the start. And so organizers basically had to work with these challenges or had to work around them. Um, and these obstacles encountered had also, uh, had therefore more to do with differences in interest and in opinions um, uh, between and within different EU institutions or between and within different tiers of governments and stakeholders, more so, so than with the methodological design that was chosen. Um, and in turn, I would say also that these pro uh, problems um, were also an expression of the little or no awareness with um, uh, participatory exercises, um, especially on a grand scale, uh, which tends to breed uh, hesitation, especially on the side of uh, political actors involved. Now, of course, <clears throat> an inclusive participatory um, European um, Union is not something that will uh, come about overnight uh, or thanks to the conference alone. So, so it's, it's not like this was really the expectation or this is what we're discussing here. Um, if, if this were to happen, it will require continued reflection on how uh, institutions can support bottom-up efforts uh, with the appropriate tools, with the appropriate funding, with um, constructive engagement. It will also demand persevering in the courage to actually involve citizens and use deliberative purpose, uh, processes for the purpose of decision-making. And so, interestingly enough, um, the, this is something that citizens crave for and we have seen that out of the European citizens panels have come calls for um, uh, more frequent online and offline interactions between the EU, um, uh, between citizens and the EU level or for holding um, a regular uh, citizens assemblies. And the same can be said about the multilingual digital platform where citizens expressed a similar desire for them to continue to be uh, involved and uh, um, consulted uh, on European affairs in the future through new mechanisms. And what we're seeing now is, at, is also that these calls have actually not got, uh, um, uh, gone on a deaf ear. Um, in, um, in its uh, first report, uh, first analysis of proposals made after the conference and the uh, communication on its follow-up for the conference, uh, which I think came out in June, the European Commission actually um, spoke of its plans to hold citizens' panels 
um, ahead of certain key legislative proposals. And, and, and this intention was reiterated then more recently by uh, the Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen in her latest speech, uh, um, State of the Union address, where she committed to making citizens' panels a regular feature of the Union's democratic life. Of course, this doesn't mean that a conference 2.0 uh, will now take place. What it means is that, you know, we're now going to look at the lessons learned from the conference exercise, and then we're going to build on the uh, best practices and create new and effective ways to um, engage citizens uh, more systematically in European politics. And to this end, I would say that it is also important to look also beyond the conference, to look at um, all the, the deliberative initiatives that take place on a regular basis at the national, regional, and local level uh, throughout the EU, um, because these exercises uh, systematically consult or involve citizens in decisions uh, about real life issues, for example, about how to spend the city's budget or how to tackle online hate and harassment or how to improve the quality of air or whether to legalize same-sex marriages. So, and in doing so, um, these this kind of um, exercises that happen uh, within the national um, arena or at the regional level, you know, they, they provide abundant expertise and, and lessons that now we can use to improve mechanism also at EU level. But then what is important to emphasize here is that perfecting deliberative processes ultimately is not enough and will never be enough. And this brings me to the second dimension of the conference, uh, which leads to the, uh, to the outcome. It is equally important that these processes, these deliberative processes, at the end of the day, also count in policymaking. So this means that the more citizens-friendly European democratic system will, will also have to listen and act on, on what citizens express with these processes. Uh, to put it in simple words, they will have the, the, the feedback loop with the citizens will have to be closed. Um, and it's true that maybe to do so, um, we will need to revisit certain uh, existing decision-making procedures, or we will need to uh, institutionalize, institutionalize channels for European citizens to actually be able to, to, to influence policy outcomes, um, which also means that um, it's a step, that step between a deliberative process and a policy or a political decision, we still need to take that step. And to do that, perhaps, you know, um, this will happen through a gradual cultural change and, 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 and also through a wide recognition that in the end, citizens um, can add value to the decision-making process. Uh, so the conference is a stepping stone in that respect, but it's, it's not really the end of the road and the road ahead remains arguably still long. Of course, the outcome of the conference um, does not only include the recommendations linked to participatory uh, democracy, it is also a vast compendium of, um, of policy uh, proposals. And so the institutions and member states now have to respond to this, not for the sake, not only for the sake of providing, um, uh, you know, 
uh, a response to citizens and therefore making sure that the conference exercise is truly participatory, but also because in doing so, in responding to, 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 to these recommendations that, that uh, have come out of the conference, it will help to give direction to the European project um, in a geopolitical context that has been transformed by the war um, by Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, the multiple consequences um, of, the, of the new era that we live in have actually increased uh, the urgency of policy reforms, uh, as well as institutional in innovations in order to um, um, put the EU in a better place to, to, to deal with, with, with the new reality and also with future challenges, um, including by following some of the lines proposed in the um, uh, conference uh, outcome. Of course, in the short time, the EU's reactions to the war are, you know, oftentimes, um, um, they, they have to be quick in response to events that are unfolding. Um, so the, the, there is a certain, certain short-termism uh, that it's um, uh, involved in the way that the EU responds because of, um, of, of what is happening at the moment. However, um, it is also crucial that the EU thinks a bit long-term and um, uh, in responding to today's transformative times and, and actually shows a little bit of political readiness and um, determination to undertake substantial reforms of EU policies, but also governance. Even before Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, um, we, see, we saw that the Union had been struggling with all sorts of multiple interrelated complex um, crises over the past decade. And every time a crisis came up, the Union kind of, or the impression is that the Union um, tried its best to um, avoid that the situation gets out of control, but it never really went to the bottom <laughs> of, or to the root uh, problem to, um, to make the far-reaching structural changes that were necessary to, to, to deal with the underlying causes of the poly crisis, but also with the multiple consequences of the poly crisis. And so hopefully now um, it will get some, will get inspired by the conference outcome, but it will also um, use the opportunity of, uh, of, of, of this um, momentum or motivation that the new context is providing in order to identify and to go for more durable solutions um, uh, and, 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 and increase the capabilities of the European Union to, um, to react to fundamental, fundamental challenges more effectively. Very, very shortly, and with this I, I, I will finish, I wanted to, to, to say that if we look now at how the member states uh, or how, how the union and the member states have reacted to the, uh, to the outcome um, uh, of the conference, which calls actually in, 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 in parts for, for, for quite fundamental um, uh, EU reform, including potential treaty change, um, we see that, well, um, it's not awfully encouraging um, because on the one hand, we see that the European Parliament and the European Commission are uh, seem to already be on board with the idea of maybe um, engaging with uh, and, and having a convention, a European convention take place, but some of the member states still remain um, hesitant, less so within the core uh, um, countries, um, EU member states, which um, exhibit a certain degree of openness to the idea of treaty changes that have been jointly decided, but, but more on other countries. 
um, who are still of the opinion that a lot can still be done within the existing treaty uh, framework and we shouldn't just jump on the treaty change uh, train too quickly, too prematurely. Um, now, it's true that many obje objectives can be accomplished um, based on the existing EU treaties and um, but it's also true that some of the innovations will also require amending the union's primary law um, in order to be able to uh, have the union uh, in a position to react to, to, to challenges more efficiently. And here I want to uh, just mention that um, there is a recent technical assessment that was carried out by the Council uh, Secretary General. And in there, one can see that um, um, they, they identified that actually within the package of what 300 proposals from citizens, only 18 would actually require treaty change. I don't want to, I can send you the link to the document and you can consult it carefully, um, just to give you some examples of the areas that might require treaty change. This include, for example, uh, so if, if the EU were to listen to citizens and enable the EU, for instance, to uh, require certain issues to become uh, a mandatory part of the educational curriculum across member states. This is a kind of uh, topic that, um, or, or, or recommendation that would probably require treaty change. Or if the um, EU, um, if we were to provide the EU with shared competencies in health, or if we were to shift from, from unanimity to qualified majority uh, in the European Council, including uh, for situations where the pastoral uh, clause does not uh, work, for example, on decisions that have um, military um, implications or on defense matters, or if we were to change the names of the institutions because citizens had actually asked for the institutions to be renamed because they found it very confusing and uh, they couldn't tell the difference among them. Um, or if we were to give the European Parliament the, ri the right to um, call for EU-wide referendums, or if we were to give the EP, um, the national parliaments and regional parliaments the right to um, to, uh, the, the, the right of initiative, and so on and so forth. So there are a number, uh, 18, according to the Secretary General um, in the Council, uh, 18 um, of these proposals would, would certainly require treaty change. But the message that I want to leave you with, and this is really the final uh, word from me, is that enacting policy reforms, um, in, or how can I say, enacting indispensable policy reforms, given our times, and treaty change, should not be seen as an either or um, kind of option. Um, the, the two should be pursued in parallel. It's, there's scope to argue that uh, they could even reinforce each other. The European Commission seems to be of, of, of a similar opinion. And so a comprehensive conference follow-up um, would probably have to follow both tracks. Um, uh, policy reform, but also where, wherever necessary to change. Up here, I know I, I went a little bit over line, but I had to improvise. <laughs> um, so, um, do you want me to pass the floor? Okay, done. I think. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. I'm very sorry for my late arrival. Um, I think Katrina has already explained uh, very well a lot of elements I wanted to, to share with you, but. Uh, Perhaps, indeed, if you, not all of you are familiar with the Conference of Future Europe, it might be worthwhile to, to recall what it, what it was. Um, I think 
it was indeed, uh, I think uh, the word was used by, by Corinna, an unprecedented uh, experiment in, in participatory and, and academics at, at EU level. Uh, the, the, if, you, if you look at the joint declaration that, that was adopted and it is really the founding document, it's very uh, striking how much it is a citizen-centered process. It's, it's thought like that. <laughs> And the whole uh, build-up of the different elements of the conference were really uh, always referring that we are doing something to listen to citizens, to uh, let give them a chance to shape the future of the EU. So everything has to be thought as putting the citizen at the center uh, of the process. It was also unprecedented because it was the first time that uh, we were uh, doing that the three institutions together. Uh, which meant uh, indeed uh, building up from the secretariat, which I, I participated, uh, and, and of course, uh, a, a more complicated uh, governance, probably with an executive board, a different uh, uh, political representative, etc., but also uh, very meaningful for the citizens who, who if you ask them their view on the future of the EU, they would want to speak to the three institutions that have in their hands this future uh, and are the main actors of the legislation. And, and third, I think uh, um, what was really uh, striking in the conference is that uh, it was quite bold uh, in a way because it, it really tried to, to test new democratic tools and, and didn't shy away from, from democratic innovation. Uh, and it, this was true, I think, for the three pillars of the conference that Corinna mentioned. Uh, first, the, this multilingual digital platform, which of course could have been uh, more citizen friendly. I mean, there are many things that you could improve on that side, but was the first time that we actually in integrated in the Europa environment, the website environment of the Commission, uh, a deliberative uh, instrument, a multilingual deliberative instrument, so people could comment on people's ideas and uh, could dialogue, exchange uh, uh, between each other, all the citizens, with the automatic translation that you could use. Uh, and this was also the hub where all the decentralized events happening uh, in the member states in, in the conference uh, were reported, and, and this is where also they share the ideas coming out of, of this event. So that was the, the, the first pillar. Um, the, the second were the, the, the European citizen panels. On that, also very unprecedented, at least on that scale. We didn't have any uh, big experience of uh, citizens' assemblies. Uh, randomly selected uh, the citizen assembly you know, I've been used for decades at local level, uh, increasingly so at regional level, at pan European level, it was very uh, relatively new. Uh, uh, randomly selected panels uh, that we uh, constitute uh, as representative as possible of the EU uh, geographical and sociological diversity. Um, so we had four uh, groups of 200 citizens who deliberated together in a multilingual environment again, multiple languages, um, for three weekends. Um, so that was the second pillar. And the third, uh, I think, is something that uh, is actually totally unprecedented, I think, uh, and very innovative. Uh, uh, this was um, another deliberating body, if you want, uh, that came after uh, all this process of generating ideas through the platform or through the panels. Uh, and it was indeed, as Corinna said, mixing political representatives with uh, citizens uh, coming from 
the, the European panels, but also national panels and events, and uh, organizing the society, local authorities. So in total, uh, um, four and about 450 people who again uh, met for uh, uh, several weekends and transform, in fact, uh, the ideas, the recommendations that came out from the panels, and also use what was uh, on the platform. They transformed it into proposals. Uh, and indeed, you, you referred to 300, um, uh, Corinna. In fact, there are 49 proposals and about 300 measures. Mm -hmm. But indeed, uh, this, uh, so if you want, uh, what is really uh, unprecedented is here that very often when you have a participatory process, it, 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 it creates recommendations that go directly into the representative bodies and the decision making process with more or less success. Huh? Here you had a kind of intermed intermediary step with this body, this plenary, that transformed the recommendation that already created a space for exchange between this deliberative and participatory process and the representative work. Um, and so the, the dialogue produced proposals, which I think have probably already more buy-in by the political actors than, than usually um, this kind of recommendation may have. So this was for, for, for the process. I can answer those questions if you have uh, later on, but uh, maybe let me concentrate a little bit on the follow-up as well, because I, I completely agree with, with Corinna that without follow-up, uh, it's not worthwhile doing these kind of things. You know, we, we, it was very clear in the joint declaration, as I was mentioning earlier, that the three institutions committed to follow-up and committed to feedback. The two words I have forgotten, actually, because I've known also a lot of participatory processes where some follow-up was happening but nobody heard about it so everyone thought well you know this is in the bin so it's follow-up and feedback on the follow-up we still need to know about it um so on the follow-up indeed there there is the two types at least uh, one is concerned the policy proposals that were made and indeed on that i think the communication of the commission in june was very clear already to the things that were already on uh, in the pipeline but would be accelerated because of the, uh, the, the proposals, the thing that were not yet in the pipeline, but the, the Commission was ready to put on the table, and the things that the, the Commission was already also ready to consider. Um, and in these three categories will continue to be follow-up, followed up, and if you look at the set of union speech of the President of Lyon that, that, that she did recently, uh, you will see that in the legislative proposals that accompany uh, the speech, you will see an asterisk next to a lot of them, and this is because they are linked to the conference. Um, so for me, to be very uh, transparent with you, I'm actually very pleasantly surprised by the way the commissions are taking this, uh, the, the commission, the, the three institutions are taking this process seriously. I mean, the mere fact that the council has taken the time to look at every single measure and to say which one would require what, I mean, it's something that we've never seen before. So for me, it's a very important qualitative step that we are making here. Second area of follow-up, which is also extremely important, but is also based on the proposals, because indeed the citizens uh, asked for more citizen engagement of this type. Um, so on that front, I must say that at the moment, each institution is looking at what to do in their own sphere. Uh, maybe there will be at some stage another big inter-institutional involvement at the moment, each institution is looking 
in their own sphere, what they can do. And the Commission has, has committed to uh, a new phase of engagement, which I think is extremely uh, important and exciting. Uh, first, indeed, uh, the President von der Leyen has clearly said that she wanted the European Citizen Finance to become a regular feature of policy making. For the Commission, it means because it has the most real initiative that we will organize two or three citizen finance per year on, on some of the legislative proposals. So before the proposal is made, taking into account the view uh, from the citizen finance. Um, it also means for the Commission, and, and, and this is quite important, that uh, we will also uh, review the way we do citizen engagement online. I mean, the, the space that you can find for citizen engagement uh, online by uh, trying to rationalize uh, everything that exists. So, for example, there is already uh, public consultations online, there's already uh, the different citizen initiative. So, we will put that together and we will add to that. Uh, the space that the conference has uh, invented, created, which is a more deliberative, multilingual space for uh, 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 other kinds of processes or related processes, because the idea is, of course, to make sense uh, of all that. So, a one stop shop, if you want, online for citizens who want to uh, take part in different kinds of processes. Um, I pass on the, the work that we want to do to better coordinate the services in the Commission doing engagement, having a corporate guidebook on best practice, good format, etc. It may seem less important, but I think it is very important because now the, the different services have a tendency to do each their own way. And it's very important to associate the format of citizen engagement with the um, uh, what it means in terms of accountability, in terms of feedback and that when you commit to do a format, it means this, this, this. And this is also a very important uh, effort that we are making now uh, in the Commission. And finally, and, and I will stop uh, there, um, we, I mean, one thing that we all agree, we would all agree here, I think, is that the conference is disappointing in terms of its visibility. Some of you have not really heard about it, it's not normal. Uh, and um, so, and we cannot say that we want an inclusive process if not not very little amount of people hear about it. So there is something with the civic participation endeavors that mean uh, we need to invest more in communication strategy uh, that that goes along with these uh, civic participation processes. And so, of course, uh, this is another area where we really need to, to invest if we want this to be. Thank you so much. So we've also seen uh, different sides of, of, uh, of looking at this and also very interesting way of, of thinking about follow-up and also really trying to make sure that this doesn't just stay within the halls that was debated in, but also really feed into the policy process in the future. But you can always look at these things glass half empty, but you can also look at these things glass half full. And I think you know that's also uh, the way we would like to have this debate. But um, I would now like to give the opportunity for Flavia Sando uh, to reflect on this, maybe also from um, yeah, younger people perspective, if you so will, and then we'll pass on to the other speaker. Yeah, so can you hear me? Okay, cool. Uh, I'm also recovering from a sickness, so sorry if I start passing at some point. I'll try to do far away from the microphone. Um, so I think um, a lot of like already very important points and perspectives have been brought on already in the speeches, so I'll attempt not to repeat myself. 
I would say uh, from a younger people perspective, right? Um, let's try to take it from the start. So the digital platform, which was kind of like the first thing that launched, if I'm correct, uh, where people could just put ideas on the platform, it was uh, multilingual, you could read the um, ideas in like any language you wanted, you could go and vote or comment on them and be like, I like this, I think this is great, and people were debating in the comments. I think that was a great approach. I think it helped the fact that it was digital, and I'm not an analyst, I don't know how much it has to do with the fact that we were still in a pandemic when it started, and uh, I think the institutions were more prone to do digital work than they would have been in the pre-COVID days. But the fact that it was digital uh, and multilingual, I believe helped a lot of people that maybe heard of it, maybe wouldn't uh, have participated in a process like this otherwise. Because if the process is still limited to Brussels, Strasbourg, some member states' capitals, then you are automatically excluding a lot of people uh, on that basis. It being digital, I think really helped uh, been a bit more inclusive in terms of participation of people of all ages, of all social standings and so on. However, <laughs> here comes the negative side. Um, and I think it ties into what you were saying about how many people participated. I think to some extent the digital platform was still, um, still people from, you know, the inside of the bubble, the whatever, you know, it was like people from NGOs, just people who were like, Already familiar with the process and um, not entirely, obviously, but um, I would say generally in a good chunk it may have been that, which I think, you know, the process of a digital platform should not be to be an echo chamber, it should be like to bring more voices in. This is something that can obviously be worked on for like future consultations if the commission really carries through with the idea of having multiple consultations per year. Um, another thing generally is like the promotion of the conference, as I mentioned as well, that um, it could have been better promoted. And in our view, and mine as well personally, I think one downside to the conference itself was like how incredibly bureaucratic, even by EU standards, it, the whole process was. Um, because um, if I ask you to, if you could tell me how the process of the conference works, would you be able to? Because I wouldn't be able to see it myself like perfectly from the top of my head. Uh, maybe, I think you would be for obvious <laughs> reasons. Um, but basically the, the process itself, like in Jeff, we had to do the biggest infographic I saw in my life to be able to explain to people what's going on and for them to understand what's going on. And I think that's also an issue when a process is that complicated and people have a very limited understanding of what's going on, they are going to be a lot more reluctant to want to get involved in it in some capacity because at the end of the day, you are not sure what's going on. Also because of basically, the conference was a one year process, right? Asking a person, an average person, you know, not someone from the parliament, from the commission, from um, NGOs, employees who are paid to do their job regarding this thing. You're asking a normal person take like all this uh, you know, time out of their life for a year to do something that they might have no clue what it will result in, you do not see uh, how it works and where it would lead. It's, it's a bit of a big commitment for someone who might not have the ability to do so. Uh, so that's also like, I think making a consultation process more clear would help. Of course, again, conference, as previously mentioned, has been like, something that is firstly done, it's like, you know, I don't expect anything to be perfect on the first try. that's not how the world works. Uh, 
sadly, maybe. Uh, but yeah, it's absolutely something that can be improved on. However, one thing that I think it's worth mentioning, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the people who are participating in the um, uh, panels were actually compensated for uh, the time they have their travels and accommodation covered, right? And in case they had to like lose work days or something, they're compensated for it to some extent. Something yeah, like that. yeah. yes. So I think that has been a very good initiative on the part of the institutions to make sure that people participate are people, it doesn't matter like if you are, because from the start, if you are in a, maybe if you're a student, you cannot afford to just, and you also work a part-time job, for example, you can't afford to just take a few days off to uh, jet off to Strasbourg to discuss whatever was being discussed, right? If you are um, a full working parent, maybe you're a single parent, maybe you cannot afford that and so on. And I think uh, offering this like coverage of costs and everything and uh, allowing people from various uh, social backgrounds to participate in the conference and in the plenaries and having their voice heard, I think that has been a good way to kind of like make it a bit less elitist and so on. Um, brackets that way in the face. Anyway, uh, yeah. So I think that was a good initiative, for example. In terms of how successful the conference has been, um, I mean, I can give you a general perspective and a federalist perspective. Uh, from the side of the young European federalists, basically looking at the list of final recommendations uh, and measures suggested, it was basically like the wish list for Christmas coming through for us. Um, you know, like everything in there was like uh, very uh, similar with our stances and stuff. And I mean, to some extent, I guess it has to do with the fact that we're very involved in the conference um, and in the discussions, but uh, we're pretty happy with the results. And overall, I would say just generally having this consultation process and having these many citizens giving an opinion on something and bring, having all this discussion together, if, you know, even looking at it from a personal perspective instead of like a policy perspective, I think, you know, for some people, it might have felt like some version of Erasmus to some extent participating in this plenary. And I think that also helps kind of like build on like, you know, common European identity and feeling more European, if you will. Um, hold on, I had another point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Results and follow-up. Um, so this is where I might <laughs> make people angry here. So basically, I, I find it very interesting that the Council Secretariat did like this thing where, look, we only need, only 18 of these proposals need a treaty change, so don't worry about it. Like, and these 18 of them are among them a common European army, European competence over health, um, initiative of legislation, the European Parliament, these are, these are big issues. It's not something that you can just scrap under the carpet and be like, it's okay, we can get over this, we did everything else. Yeah, I'm not sure that they're playing, they're just qualified to make proposals. They're not really saying it's easy or it's hard. Fair, but <laughs> that was going to be my next point. At the same time, um, don't get me wrong, I think that's very useful for someone who is writing a master thesis or a paper about uh, the conference. I hope people are doing that, that would be cool to read. Um, but at the same time, I maybe wish the institutions would use the energy to start working on the actual proposals, implementing them, right up and doing uh, service and uh, stuff, to be fair. Because uh, as mentioned, it's like the majority of proposals not actually require treaty changes and until you disagree on treaty changes, of course, going to take a while if it even happens. 
uh, just get start working on the actual proposals that no requires that, right? Like you have all the tools in your books, get to it already, right? Because if we are we usually stay in the institutional limbo that you sometimes take to make decisions and uh, you know for something to become to go from a proposal to an actual uh, implemented law regulation or whatever. Uh, if we wait at that usual period of time, which is not, it's usually more than a year, then um, maybe the participants in the conference are not gonna feel so good about it. And here is like one point that I want to make. Um, usually, like, again, with the institutions, with, uh, you know, NGOs that are familiar with working with the institutions, we know how the process works, you know, it takes time, we know people take a lot to agree, like it's, it is known, right? But uh, for the average citizens who has, who was in the conference, sure, they understood what the conference was about, and now they want to see the results. And if the results, if they keep on limbo and waiting and waiting and waiting until the results come, then maybe that person feels like, but what did we do this whole thing for if it's nothing is happening, right? Because I don't know, personally, I feel like if you come to a citizen, uh, like, three years after the process was done, like, look, we finally did this thing that at that point they're going to forget what it was even about, right? And I think this is one thing where uh, the reputation, if you will, of the conference could have to suffer. Mm -hmm. If um, concrete action, uh, it, again, it, there are a lot of proposals, some of them require specific change, we don't have to do all of them at once, but if nothing concrete comes out of it, like the near future, I feel like the some extent the participants in the conference might feel like this was just another thing that they're gonna put on a wall somewhere and stuff it and just gonna go down in the archives of EU legislation like everything else. And I think that might actually have a negative influence on the popular perception, right? Because again, not a lot of people might have like the average EU citizen might have not known about the conference on the future of Europe. But these people, like these citizens participating in the conference, maybe they, they probably told their family, yeah, I'm going to Strasbourg for, you know, a weekend to discuss this thing and this thing, and they may have told them, yeah, this is what we want to do, you know? And, you know, it's like word of mouth kind of promotion where um, you do not know about it from like the institution itself, but you know it from people who are involved with it. You know, like me going to my mom and being like, yeah, this is something we organized this process this other day. And she's like, I have no clue what that is about. Tell me more, you know, like it could have been a case like that. Um, and if there is like um, a negative perception from the part of the participants in the conference that nothing is happening, then obviously they are going to maybe mention it, you know, to again to their circles and word is going to spread that, that, yeah, this was just whatever for show and nothing is happening. Uh, I'm not saying that is, is what's happening, but I think that is a high risk. And I think honestly think that popular word of mouth uh, complaints could do more damage in terms of like credibility than scandals, institutional scandals or something like that. Uh, because it, you know, when it's coming from an when it comes something is coming from an institution, it feels far removed from you. When it's coming from a friend or a family member or someone you actually have a daily interaction with, it feels a lot more personal. And if this person who is involved in the process says, eh, then you are not gonna start digging about uh, everything what, that's actually happening on the institutional level to look about it. You're just gonna take a word for it. Maybe not the best thing to do, but this is what it is. So yeah, I think that was that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Gitan, would you like to come in here already? Because it was about 
uh, risk of not following up, and you had just told us that it will be followed up. So I think, it, yeah, uh, and then we, we have to discuss it. Yeah, I, I really appreciate I just want to say that uh, it's true that uh, a treaty change is part of it. It's also important to not uh, evaluate the follow-up of the conference only on the basis of that. I think this is a bit of a tendency because some also really wanted to go to the first step towards the convention and they had a tendency then to evaluate it only on, on the basis of that. So what is important in what Corinna was saying is that we should not uh, underestimate perhaps the need to have that at some stage for some of the changes, but it's not all of it. Uh, and that, that's just what we were saying. And then the, the, the policy for poison, so you should start and, and work on it. I think we are. <laughs> and I think this was the whole point of having this uh, list uh, after the SOTEU with the different elements we were already working on, actually. Uh, and, and for example, and the panel we already are implementing, the, the president has announced that the first panel will be on food waste, that there is food waste proposal uh, being prepared, and that we should organize that very soon. So, yeah, I mean, it might not be the whole uh, uh, spectrum of the proposal right now, but step by step. Thanks. Yes, so thank you so much. Also, for you know, also in the first panel, we had discussion in between the panelists. But now I would like the opportunity for Markus Spurler to come in. And you have also been so working very closely with the so working in the cabinet of the European Ombudsman. You, um, the Ombudsman is, of course, also very active. I, I follow the work closely of the European Ombudsman, very active in uh, trying to link EU citizens to EU affairs and also interpreting her role, a bit like the European Parliament, in a very proactive way, also beyond the legal letter, in a positive way, obviously, this, um, to really giving it shape. Um, so, and you have also been following the conference very closely. So, yeah, yes, questions. yes, we, we, we have at our office, of course, as you said, been following the, the conference very closely uh, because, for two reasons, because uh, the, the Ombudsman um, offers another type of citizen participation. As you said, citizens can turn to us if they have an issue with, uh, with EU uh, administration. And that is kind of, uh, the, the conference lifted that to, to a very large scale where, where people could actually bring their ideas in, in changes and not, not only complain. And on the other hand, we followed the, the conference closely because we expected a lot of complaints about the, the, the conference because we thought this is a, is a, is a very, very big thing. Uh, people maybe uh, about the, the way the conference goes, and we didn't get a lot of complaints. We did we didn't open any inquiries on the um, on the conference. That probably speaks for the the organizers. Well, well done, Gaetan. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, so so that was uh, that was uh, some somewhat 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 surprising for us. I I discussed this before uh, in the in the lunch break, and it could also. Uh, another another um, idea why there were so few complaints could also be that there was not, not much public attention paid to uh, to to the to the conference. But uh, so so I mean to to be to be discussed. <laughs> right, probably probably both. So um, uh, the uh, the uh, I mean citizens are and that is a, is a a decision that the EU made in 1992 when they introduced the uh, the EU citizenships 
citizens are at the center of what the EU does. And uh, in 1992, by the way, with the Treaty of Maastricht, also the Ombudsman was uh, introduced. And uh, so we talked about, uh, uh, was, was the conference a success? And uh, I think we, we, we all agree that, that it was in terms of, of, uh, of what came out in, in terms of, of, of the, um, the, the outcome uh, that is uh, in, the, in the final report of the, of the conference. It's a, it's a very good indicator of what people wanted and probably gave people the feeling that they could participate in, uh, uh, in, the, in the conference. But of course, the big question is now uh, uh, the long-term impact. We discussed that the follow-up. And uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, I think, something, something very important, uh, how the conference is, is followed up. The, the Ombudsman once talked uh, at a conference event, and she said uh, that the conference shouldn't be an exercise in citizen washing. So um, she, she, she referred to the, the practice of greenwashing, where, where a company plants a tree uh, in front of its headquarters, but in the back, uh, um, uh, chops down an entire forest to to um, to to uh, to keep the company running. So it's 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 really kind of a, a facade of citizen participation uh, to 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 look good, but then nothing nothing comes out. It's not that's not what the ombudsman said, but she warned that if not properly followed up, that that um, that would um, would happen. So. Um, Let's hope it doesn't. And there we came to we we talked about follow follow up and and feedback, very very important. And that we can also link to uh, a little bit to um, to to the 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 demands that were made in the conference, the recommendations. If you look at the uh, at the part uh, that was on uh, on uh, European democracy, there you see that a lot of the things that um, that people wanted were. Uh, the the uh, the EU should explain its work more. The EU should should uh, uh, should involve citizens more in a way that 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 they actually understand what's uh, what's going on. And that uh, so so not only for the conference that is the case, but for everything that the EU does, we and that's something in Brussels we've been saying for for a very long time. And we all know that the EU needs to communicate what it does better, and uh, it needs to. Um, needs to to, uh, uh, to 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 be to be transparent about its work uh, there is nothing worse than uh, than than having the assumption that the EU works in, in secrecy and uh, that's again ties to ties to our work where we where we uh, uh, do a lot on, on on EU transparency that indeed is very important that the the uh, the EU at every level uh, communicates actively with citizens and and uh, and is not afraid to take citizens' calls and to to take citizens seriously. And that goes for for um, for an administrator in the in the Commission as well for as for the the Commission as a whole. Um, one point I wanted to make was on the. Um, the crisis, since we're talking about uh, crisis today, uh, and yes, we talked about that too, um, about short-term, uh, short-term and uh, uh, problem solutions in times of crisis, and indeed that seems to seems to be an issue, and that could also be an issue with the follow-up of uh, of the conference. When you look at the this year's uh, State of the Union uh, speech, there was uh, up 
obviously a lot on uh, current crises and not uh, that much about uh, the, the follow-up the, of the conference, even though it was announced before that this would be a central part of the State of the Union speech, the, the follow-up on, uh, on, the, on the conference. So, so the, the question here that I want to ask is, in order to reflect and to, to, to make a meaningful change, does the, can that even happen in times of crisis, or does the EU need a break? Next time we have a couple of years without, uh, without a, a, a crisis that's very immediate, can the EU uh, uh, sit and think about these, these uh, issues that go a little further and go a little beyond, possibly treaty change, for example, that um, in, in this, at this very moment, we don't. We can't really think about treaty change because we have a, a war at the at the at the brink of uh, uh, of Europe. And then, um, yeah. So, uh, so so that that would be the uh, the question on on um, how how is uh, how is treaty how is treaty change possible? Uh, tying into that, of course. Um, treaty change. We have to take on board the member states. And without the member states, there is no, there will be no treaty change. Uh, and um, to have, uh, to have this, uh, but the, the, the um, let's say the, the conference showed that um, people want a change. So, so what we need to do or what needs to happen, in my opinion, is that national politicians um, take that into their programs because the conference showed that this is a popular popular topic at least for the people that were involved and that is something something that you can you can really uh, do national politics with as well and only then you can go towards treaty change because because uh, because you have governments that are interested in actually these things so um, um, a lot of thoughts a few questions maybe um, I'll pass back to you You've been listening to Amplify, which was made with the support of the European Union's Erasmus Plus program and the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs Communicating Europe initiative, although these institutions do not necessarily endorse its contents. It is produced by the DCU Brexit Institute in association with the Jean Monnet Centre of Excellence, Rebuild. The host is Ian Cooper. The producer is Lucrezia Rossi. Music by Doug Romano.